my goodness. Good morning. Oh, man. I'm excited this morning. Um, but now I have to pull up the, uh, the correct thing. I was still looking at my Sunday school lesson. Uh, man, brothers and sisters, it is great to be back with you all this week. Uh, last week, our family got to go to Oklahoma and, and got to go to church with my parents in Arkansas. It was awesome to spend the weekend with family, but I am so happy to be here with you again, uh, proclaiming God's word to his people through the power of his spirit. If you would please turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21 this morning. Acts 17, 16 through 21. We've only got a handful of verses here, and so I'm going to just... Read the whole passage today while y'all follow along with your eyes and ears. Um, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what is this new teaching that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the tremendous blessing of being able to gather together uh, so far legally in this country and uh, to be able to share your word with one another. And uh, we pray that each person here is good soil and that the seed that is planted takes root and bears fruit. We ask, Father, that you will help each of us uh, to spread the news of Christ as we go throughout the week and to love others as Jesus did. We pray that you will help us today to have a deeper understanding of what truth is. We ask all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Okay, like all scripture, this passage makes more sense when it's looked at in context, okay? So for just a minute or two, we're going to go back for a refresher on what's been going on with Paul since he started on this journey. Because remember, this is the second of three missionary journeys that Paul undertook in order to spread the gospel of Jesus. Uh, He was originally planning to go on the trip with Barnabas, you probably remember, but they had a disagreement and they parted ways. Uh, So Paul has been traveling with this prophet named Silas for the last few months, as well as his protege Timothy and the human author of the book of Acts, which is the apostle, uh, or sorry, the doctor Luke. Uh, And since leaving their home base at Antioch, Paul and Silas had, uh, they'd visited their church plants in several different cities, and they'd been treated pretty well at those places. But then God led them across Asia. You remember he had a, a vision of this Macedonian. So they were led across Asia, and uh, they began preaching in new territory. And this was mostly Gentile territory that had uh, large Jewish populations. And so these last three cities that they'd stayed in were Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And in Philippi, they were beaten and imprisoned. You remember that, right? And then uh, in Thessalonica, they escaped ahead of a mob. And then in Berea, the Christians actually had to sneak Paul out of town. They put him on a ship because the Thessalonican Jews came there to kill him, right? And so in chapter 17, Paul is hanging around in Athens, and he's waiting for his companions to show up because, remember, he was, he was waiting for Timothy and whatnot. Um, that's where our passage begins today. And so before we get back into the text, though, I want to explain the title. I want to I share with you direction that I felt led to go with today's passage, okay? Based on Luke's description of the people of Athens, I believe that there is a deep correlation 
between Greek culture and thought and what is becoming the dominant perspective in modern culture and thought in the West. Because it seems that they and we as a nation have a similar view of truth. And it's an unfortunate view. The people of Athens viewed truth through the lens of relativism. While Paul viewed truth through the lens of reality. Now for an easy way to understand the difference, uh, relativism is subjective. Meaning that, that truth depends on one's point of view or one's opinion, or one's emotion. In other words, truth is relative. That's where the phrase relativism comes from. This is, uh, this is very much existential thought. But on the other hand, reality, it's not subjective. Reality is objective, meaning it's what actually is. Truth can be viewed from different perspectives. It can be ignored. It can be misrepresented or misunderstood. But truth does not change. How it's perceived or, or whether it's rejected does not change what truth actually is, okay? In America today, we, the prevailing attitude, I think, is similar to ancient Greece with very strong relativistic leanings. You know, we, we want to be fluid with the truth, right? But God, God, on the other hand, is very concrete, and He defines truth not simply by saying what is true, but by being true. So today what this passage is going to demonstrate, I believe, is the difference between the world's view of truth and God's view, which is reality, in hopes that it will have, uh, help us to have, have greater discernment in our own lives, a better understanding of His will in our own lives. So with that in mind, we're going to jump back into verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So, so while Paul's just, you know, he's, he's here, he's hanging around, it hits him. There are idols everywhere in this city. You know, one of the ancient Greek historians said it's easier to, to meet a god than a man in Athens. And he's, he's being sarcastic, but he's, he's saying this because there are so many idols, so many different little g gods that were worshipped there. This was a place that was very proud of its, its religious tolerance and its diversity, right? Does that sound familiar? At all? Does it sound familiar? You see, relativism says God is one of many. And it says that each God would be equally valid for that person who believed in him or, or her. And the Greeks had multiple gods. And different Greeks worshipped different gods for different reasons. They were so theologically open-minded that their collective brain had fallen out. Anyway, this passage says that God's spirit Excuse me, Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Why? It's because of this rampant idolatry that he saw everywhere. And the, the false gods that were represented, the, the belief in these gods that was represented by these idols. Remember, you know, Paul had grown up as a good Jewish boy in Jerusalem. He had learned the Mosaic law from a young age. He was, and what he was seeing violated the very first two of the Ten Commandments. You guys remember those, right? Do you recall? You shall have no other gods before me, right? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in earth beneath or that's in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? Because I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Is that fair? Well, that's the wrong question. 
Is it right? Does God have the right to demand worship? Okay, good. Yes, he absolutely does. Does he have the right to demand to be the only object of worship? Absolutely. Why? Because it's based in the truth that there really is no other God to worship. Everything else is either a demonic spirit or it's a figment of human imagination. As Yahweh said in Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no other God. See, the reality is that God is not one of many. He's the one and only. And Paul knew that. We know that. And we know his, his name and that he revealed himself to us through his holy word. But y'all, I mean, I think I can appreciate how Paul's spirit was provoked within him, you know, being, being surrounded by idolatry and falsehood. When we know the truth, things that blatantly contradict truth ought to bother us. I mean, I'll tell you what my spirit is, is provoked by. The modern-day equivalent of an idol on every street corner is when people say that all faiths are equally valid. I mean, you know what valid means, right? It means true. Christianity teaches that God sent His Son to die on the cross for, for why? For our sins. As the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then God raised Him from the dead. But Islam teaches that, that God didn't send His Son, but He sent a prophet. And it says that God didn't accept His death as an atoning sacrifice because He didn't die at all, but He ascended into heaven directly from the cross. I'm not mocking, I'm sharing. My, my neighbor across the street, wonderful, wonderful family, is Islamic. And we've had this conversation, I think, three times now, very, very openly. They believe something very different from what we believe. They cannot both be true. Both of these, these ideas of God can't be true because they are directly in opposition to each other. And folks, the God of the Bible makes some very exclusive claims in his word about himself. And so we choose whether to accept them, but we certainly can't accept them and their opposite at the same time. Now you can argue there may, there may be a paradox in saying that God is one God in three persons, but it's not a logical fallacy. If you need more info on that, talk to me afterwards, okay? Because there's... There's a lot to that, that, that discussion. Uh, but anyway, let's read on. So he, this is Paul, reasoned, now the Greek word there means discussed or dialogued, uh, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I, I love this because Paul, he's not just sitting around, you know, doo -doo 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 -doo, twiddling his thumbs. You know, he, he doesn't even have backup yet, but he's already, he's already back in the saddle. He's already doing what he does best, right? He goes on to a couple of places. I think these are important to note. Firstly, he goes to the synagogue, probably mostly on the Sabbath. And the reason that he goes there is to witness to Jews and to the Jewish converts. Okay, But he's also going into the marketplaces on a daily basis. And that word marketplace means, uh, the Greek means basically a place people gather. And he goes there to talk about uh, anyone, to talk to anyone who's willing to dialogue about Jesus. And I don't think that's really a common practice in our society, do you? I mean, at least not anymore in our culture. I feel like because we're so relativistic in our culture and truth is thought to be subjective, that people often say, well, just live and let live when it comes to others and their beliefs. Or maybe live and let die is a little more 
truthful in that. Because there's, there's, a, there's a zeitgeist, there's a spirit of the age that, that says no one should ever try to impress their beliefs on anyone else or, or even try to tell someone that we believe their way of thinking or living is wrong even if that way is detrimental to them and to society. We're not supposed to say anything. I get the impression Athens was like this, um, or at least as far as personal faith went. Now, thankfully, Paul did not subscribe to live and let live. Uh, he already seemed to understand what reality is for the Christian. It, it is, as he says later, later in Philippians, to live is Christ. Not live and let live. To live is Christ. And if we understand that the Lord has called us to, to spread the gospel and to make disciples, then our lives ought to show that. And Paul knew he knew he was a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. So he wasn't willing to just kind of, you know, fritter away his life. If you don't mind, I want to share a mental picture with you, okay? I want to picture you've been in a shipwreck, okay? And you are floating in water that's cold enough to kill you. And you are not Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way, just saying that out loud. But, but you're floundering and you're slowly freezing to death. And along comes some folks in a lifeboat. And they discover you're still alive. So they ask if you can reach up so they can pull you into the boat. And once you're in the boat, they wrap you in a blanket. They help you get warm, right? But as soon as your teeth stop chattering, they ask you to join in and help them pull in more people from that shipwreck. What do you do? Do you say, no, thanks, I'm comfortable now? I certainly hope not. I hope that when you, when you recognize that you've been saved, that you've been brought into the boat, that your desire is to help save others. The Apostle Paul was willing to be uncomfortable, and we need to be willing to be uncomfortable too in order to fulfill our calling as Christians. Anyway, let's keep reading. Uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? I get a kick out of that word babbler. Uh, at least the word that's translated babbler literally means seed picker, you know, uh, like a crow or, or like somebody that's nitpicking. Um, it's, kind of, it's got a derogatory connotation. But anyway, th there's something interesting to me about this passage. Epicureans and Stoics were on two different sides of the philosophical spectrum, okay? Epicureans, they believed in pleasure as the highest good and pain as the greatest evil. And their reasoning was highly guided by emotion. But the Stoics, on the other hand, they, they were champions of logic. And they considered that virtue and vice were their guiding principles as opposed to pleasure and pain. And so philosophically, super different. And yet it appears that both sides found something they didn't like about Paul. Huh. Funny how that works. Do you remember who Jesus' main enemies were in the gospel besides demons? Pharisees and who? And the Sadducees. Right. The Pharisees were the ones he had the most trouble with uh, that we read about in the gospels, but the Sadducees were the ones actually in charge. Annas and Caiaphas, those guys were the high priests that year. They were Sadducees. These two parties were very opposite in their theology, but they found a common cause. Even though they're enemies, they found a common cause to unite against the truth himself. And in a similar sense, relativism unites against truth. And I know that this is not a perfect illustration because, you know, Epicureans and Stoics, they both believe the other to be wrong. But see, folks on either side could still agree they didn't like Paul. And I think in our society today, we, 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 we see almost 
almost everyone is willing to tolerate the viewpoints of others as their truth, as long as that same courtesy is extended to them. But whenever someone claims to know the truth, then what comes next? Anger. Indignation. How dare you say that God determined my gender? How dare you tell me that God is the one who defines morality? How dare you insist that there's only one way to heaven? You can bet on it that most live and let live people will get really bent out of shape if you tell them there's a right way to live and believe. But here's the thing. Eventually, reality vindicates itself. It reveals itself to be true. I'm going to ask for a favor. Shannon, if you could send Evie out to grab me some water, that'd be great. Thank you. A person can have all the surgeries in the world and never be able to outrun their chromosomes. Thank you. You are a doll. Isn't she lovely, folks? A person will never be able to change what is morally right or wrong. And as Ron mentioned earlier, there will never be another name under heaven by which man can be saved. Now, of course, some of this is obvious in the present. I mean, we can see in real time, such as in the case of human biology. You know, you can look at at Laurel Hubbard in the Olympics and go, that's a dude, (laughs) you know? You can say that. And be, and be right. It's reality. It's validated by chromosomes, by DNA. It's, it's in the present. You can see right now. But some of the truth that's, that's vindicated is more apparent in the fruit that it bears. We know that God's way brings joy and contentment. But the way of the world, sin, it causes pain. It causes loss. It causes heartache. So some reality is seen right now. Some reality is seen by the fruit it bears in some reality, will not be apparent until after we die. And we come face to face with the judge. But the fact is, folks, truth will always be vindicated in the end. Always. Continuing with the text here. Um, While some were apparently being sarcastic, others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I think it's good that they were at least allowing Paul to engage them, but they were behaving very skeptically. You know? to, to this audience, uh, as to relativism in general, Jesus is interesting, but they're still treating him as trivia. You know, just one of these many possible options to believe in. And on a strange note, uh, the Greek word that's translated divinities here is daimonion. It's, literally, it's demonic beings, Okay. So could they possibly have been any farther from the truth? But this this type of of vague, detached comment is a pretty odd response to Paul's message because honestly, it sounds like he's being pretty clear, doesn't it? In what what he's saying. I mean, after all, Luke writes that he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And for some reason, the ESV doesn't fully translate this whole sentence because what it should say, according to the Greek, is he was proclaiming to them Jesus 
and the resurrection as good news. That word, that Greek word for gospeling is at the end of that sentence. And I think that last part is pretty important. You know, to, to people who believe that, that truth is subjective, Jesus is a curiosity. I mean, maybe, maybe he's a, an impressive one, but the reality is so much more than that. Jesus is the gospel. Now, I, I, I don't mean that, that Christ is indistinguishable from the message about him, but rather this. The gospel is all about who Jesus is and what God did through him. Christ, the Son of God, he, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, and then he rose from the dead as our living hope. And by faith in him, we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That, folks, that's what Paul was saying. That's what he was proclaiming. It wasn't that indistinct. And that's what we ought to tell people too. We ought to tell people the truth about Jesus, even though it may not be received. I mean, you know, sure, our, our, our culture, our society is pretty comfortable with some version of Jesus, right? Just not the biblical Jesus. I mean, they, they may be okay with him as, as, as a good man or a great teacher or a prophet or revolutionary or a social justice guru or some other thing, but relativistic people don't want to accept who he really is because then they'd have to do what he says. Jesus didn't say he was a way or a truth. He said he was the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. He also testified that all of his words are true. And scripture tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, so what are we supposed to do with that? Because if it's true, we really don't have a whole lot of options. <laughs> There's a, a famous quote um, C.S. Lewis said this, a man who was merely a man and said the, the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. I want you to think about that for a second. I'm going to repeat it. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman and something or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it to. End quote. Spot on, Clive. I like how it was condensed by Josh McDowell years later. This argument says Jesus either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Those are only options based on what he said about himself. And we believe he is the Lord. So we must accept Jesus as he revealed himself in Scripture or not at all. And for those of us who have accepted Jesus, if we've received him, we should do our best to present him to the world in order that they may receive him too. We're going to continue on these last few verses. Uh, getting close here. And they, that's the philosophers, took him, Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus. That's a, what's an Areopagus? Sounds like a tortoise, doesn't it? <laughs> what is the Areopagus, anybody? 
It's a compound word. It combines two Greek words. Uh, Ares, the, the, the Greek god of war, and rock. We usually refer to this, this place by another name. Anybody know it? I know you do. Mars Hill, thank you. Yeah. One of the most famous sermons in the book of Acts is the sermon on Mars Hill. That starts in verse 22, so we're not going to get to that today. But anyway, that, that's where they brought Paul, saying, May we know this new teaching that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, it's kind of hard to know, just reading their words. Is, is this, are they asking out of sincerity, curiosity, or, or boredom? We don't know. Based on the next sentence, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Huh. Before we unpack this, uh, I want to point out, biblical authors use hyperbole in very much the same way that we do, Okay. When you read that, that last sentence, Luke's obviously not saying that every single person in Athens never ate, slept, or used the restroom because they were only and always spent every second discussing something new, okay? That, that's not what he's saying. He's exaggerating for effect. He expects anyone who reads this to realize that, okay? Just like we might say everyone or, or, or never, you know, those type of things. So that's clearly hyperbole. But his point is made, okay? The people of Athens were constantly looking for the next shiny thing to grab their attention. And that should sound awfully familiar too because we too live in a culture steeped in relativism and relativism seeks what's new. It's never satisfied with what is. You know, it's not content with, with important traditions and values that have held society together for millennia. It's always looking for something different because it usually equates different with better, even though it's not necessarily better. And that's, that's a major problem when the thing that they want to recreate was right the first time. For example, God's original plan for marriage was as perfect as a human relationship could be. It was a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman for life. And his original plan for the family was that a mother and father would have children together and raise them together until the children were able to marry other people's children and raise families of their own. And God's, God's original plan for government was to lead his people himself. It doesn't get much better than that, does it? But people, we, people always, always mess it up. There's nothing new under the sun, but people, we keep looking anyway, don't we? Church, we must not be like that. Relativism seeks after what is new, but people grounded in God's reality seek after what is true. It doesn't matter if that truth is a recent discovery or if that truth precedes time itself, but truth is what we ought to be seeking. Because when we do this, God reveals himself in it because all truth really is God's truth. I may, it may be cliche, but it's not wrong. All truth is God's truth. So which tendency is reflected by your walk in the Lord? I mean, do you lean toward a more relativistic perspective or are you committed to God's truth as it's revealed in his word? Because guys, this is going to affect every aspect of your life, not just in this life. Be forewarned. Years after the story in the book of Acts, Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Y'all, this is happening big time in the world today, just like it was back then. You know, and the way to escape this trap is by attending a church that teaches the timeless word of God accurately and consistently. Now, I will tell you that, that we, we try to do this here at Crossroad. We want to share the full gospel, the full counsel of God with you and not, you know, scratch itchy ears. But, but even then, we're not perfect. I mean, I, I think we all struggle with trying to rationalize away the parts of God's truth that, that we're less comfortable with. I even struggle with that. Guys, but listen, we must resist that temptation as often as we can recognize it. We've got to let the Word of God speak to us because it is truth. It is God's truth, and as it washes over us, we become sanctified. We become washed in it. You know, Jesus prayed to his Father about the disciples. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We have it. We have it. Friends, let's read it. Let's learn it. Let's memorize it. Let's internalize it. Let's live it. Let's obey God's word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. We should do that. We should teach it to others. Uh, we're going to end with this. <clears throat> God gives us his truth. Because he knows us and he loves us and he wants us to know and to love him. There's no greater truth than God's revelation in Christ. So I want to encourage you today, please, please take advantage of this enormous gift that we have of being able to know Christ, of being able to have the word of God. He has revealed himself to us through his written word and through the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And folks, if you've not received him by faith, if you've not turned your life over to Christ, then you need to do it. You need to do it today. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. Let us baptize you into his name as the word commands us to do. And guys, if you've done that already, but you recognize you've strayed, come back. Come back to him today. Let us pray with you. You know what, if you're, if you're just seeking a church body and you think, hey, maybe you found one, let us welcome you home. But don't pass up this opportunity today to walk in truth.